The third conference of the retreat offers reflections on the heroic and essential actions of women making possible the salvation of God's people through oppressive slavery in Egypt to freedom as portrayed in the book of Exodus. These include courageous acts of civil disobedience, calculated risks, compassion and love overpowering oppression, and the hidden but essential role of Miriam, the sister of Moses, before, during, and after the escape of the Israelites from Egypt. Well, good afternoon. The whole afternoon wasn't washed out. <laughs> And apparently it may not rain again until nine o'clock tonight. So <laughs> still get outside before the, they lock the doors. <laughs> get back in. But if you don't get back in, you're going to get very wet. <laughs> so this morning we went through that whole mess of the book of Genesis. And of course, the book of Genesis um, comes to conclusion with the whole family of Jacob gathered in Egypt where Joseph is still a person of, of note, and they um, settle in. Uh, they keep Jacob's bones, and they are going to return them to the land, the promised land, when they go. But um, they enjoy some prosperity there, because they are the family of Joseph, and Joseph was a very significant and important person in Egypt, recognized by the pharaohs that raised him up that he had saved their nation. But um, there's this telling line at the very beginning of the book of Exodus where it says, a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And a little bit of Egyptian history I know is that there were, um, while it was always Egypt, the rulers of Egypt, um, dynasties changed. And foreign invaders came in and toppled dynasties and took the, the nation over. And so a dynasty arrives and they don't give two hoots about who Joseph was or anything that had gone before them. If you've ever been through a change in an organization where um, the leadership changes and that sort of thing, um, and someone who's never been there before becomes in charge, uh, and suddenly everything that everyone has done before just doesn't matter anymore, you kind of know what that's like. Um, I have used that line more often than not with, with people in organizations who can't understand why they were once so favored and now they're ignored. And I'll say things like, a pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph. And then they don't know what I'm talking about because, <laughs> so I kind of have to explain that a little bit and, and, I, and I do, but that's, that happens. Um, but this new dynasty sees this, and, and the, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, while they are not a nation, they are still refugees in a foreign country. It is not their home, it is not their land. But they're there for several hundred years. So as far as they know, it is home. But the, the new rulers, um, instead of seeing them as an asset, see them as a threat and decide that they need to uh, neutralize the threat. And so their first step is to put them to work. And apparently, it's, it's, it's fairly typical for uh, the Jewish people throughout the world is that they, they survive. They've been moved all over the place. They have been persecuted. They have been tried to be eradicated. And something about the resilience of that people and, and the great sages say what it's about is the Torah. 
because you don't have to be in charge, you don't have to be in power to know that the whoever is in power is not really in charge. And so they're, they're, God's word sustains them through all kinds of things. And they had not yet received the Torah. There was no law. The only law governing any part of the world at any time was whoever the ruler of that place was. And by and large, the people of that ancient world, um, the gods that they worshipped were not law-giving gods. The gods were not gods who were particularly interested in human morality or human flourishing. Uh, that was not their concern. The gods needed to be placated, bought off, um, you know, cajoled, and the gods were capricious and, and not reliable and not, and, and not uh, entities that could, were interested in the well-being of the human race. They would use the human race for their, for their pleasure, their playthings. They didn't need any power. They had all the power in the mindset of the gods. They had all the power in the mindset of, of people who worship these gods. And the purpose of worship wasn't to grow closer to these gods because you didn't really want to be too cozy with the gods. They were not, not people you wanted to be particularly intimate with, but you wanted to keep them from being mad at you. That was pretty much the thing. And if you were really good at it and the gods were favoring you, you would prosper. Um, so this nation of Israel had some memories, some sense that they were a people that were a little bit different. That the God who had spoken to Abraham, the God who had conceived Isaac in the womb of a hundred-year-old woman, the God who guided Isaac, saved Isaac's life, and brought forth the sons Esau and Jacob through Rebekah, their mother, um, who connected with Jacob, even though Jacob was a deceiver and a liar. Nonetheless, Jacob was the inheritor of the promise that somehow this God would make them a great nation. But while they're becoming a great nation in Egypt, they're not a nation and it's not their home. This is not where they belong. And they are at the whims of the ones who rule that nation. They are not free. Even before they are enslaved, they are not free. The whole story of the book of Exodus is the journey from slavery to freedom. And the great sages of the Torah will say, and the story of the book of Exodus is that while slavery is hard, freedom's even harder. And this journey that they go embark on, that in Exodus we only go a year into the journey, and then um, Levit Leviticus just is a big pause, and then Numbers they go for the 40 years trek to nowhere for, for 40 years, is a training in freedom how to be a people who are truly free without being anarchists. Because it becomes clear that you can be free, and if there is no order to the freedom, there is no freedom. And you can have order and no freedom, and that's called slavery. And the promise of the Torah is God wants to encourage, enable, facilitate a people who can figure out and be taught by God 
That real freedom comes with a free choice to take care of one another, to put the common good ahead of your own, to not follow your own whims and wills. But freedom comes when a people make the choice to give their hearts and minds over to the wisdom of God's sovereignty and God's presence and God's love. And that doesn't come with license. It comes with great responsibility. But that's a long story short. We get back to the beginning of the story. So the pharaohs are afraid of, of the people of Israel. So first they put them to hard labor, trying to diminish them because they're growing too fast. They are a fertile people and they're, num people are, and they're becoming numerous. They are, they are flourishing even though they are not home. And so the, the, the trick is, okay, how do we stop this flourishing? So they first try the, uh, well, we'll make them work too hard and they'll be too exhausted to reproduce. That didn't work. <laughs> Somehow I'm not sure that would ever work, <laughs> but it didn't work here. And so they have to go to plan B and plan B is genocide. Now Egypt is an empire. The Pharaoh is an emperor. There is only one law, and that is whatever comes out of the Pharaoh's mouth. It is to be carried out, or else there will be severe consequences. And so Pharaoh's orders is, are first to the midwives who deliver the children of the Hebrews. And he tells them, if it's a girl, the child can live. If it's a boy, kill it. And so we meet the first great feminine heroes of civilization. The first act of civil disobedience, where they have no rights, they have no law, they have nothing on their side to protect them. And the midwives who have names, well, I can't remember, but they're in that article. <laughs> they have names and they refuse to carry out the orders of the emperor. They refuse to be complicit in genocide. Now, they're not cl quite clear whether these midwives were Hebrew women or Egyptian women. Things seems to go that they are Egyptian women. They are not part of the Hebrew family. And yet, despite that, they are not part of this family. They cannot bring themselves to destroy the babies they are delivering. And so they don't. And of course, they're summoned to Pharaoh, who demands an account of their actions. Why are they disobedient? And they, and I'm sure that you, over, over, your, over your many years of, of working with very strong women and being very strong women, know the score, know the, know the script. And they say, I don't know how it happens. <laughs> Not our fault. You see, here's the deal. These women don't need midwives. They're strong. They deliver babies without help. And by the time they get there, there's nothing we can do. That probably wasn't true. But it's a great act of civil. It is an act of opposition to a reign of terror and depression and genocide by which human beings think we get power and control. 
and the actions and the voices of these two midwives who have no standing whatsoever and apparently didn't even have families of their own who were not part of this people. But they speak with these voices of women who respect that somehow life, life is more sacred, more precious, more valuable than any subservience to any empire, no matter how powerful and strong it is. They get away with it. Just as I would imagine many women have gotten away with similar things because no one wants to mess with them. So these two midwives, there's two of them named, there may have been more, but they, 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 they just confidently acknowledge that they are serving a power greater than the empire. Even though in their culture and times, there was no power greater than the empire. There was no sense that there's a higher authority in the world. But to these women, they recognized that there must be a higher authority in the world. And in allegiance to that higher authority, whose name they do not know, who, about knowledge of, of the ways of the sovereign creator of the universe, the one that's the author of all life, no real knowledge of that God. They nonetheless speak words and carry out actions in opposition to death. Somehow or another, carrying within them this innate sense that you don't kill in order to find freedom or you don't kill in order to just remain powerful. And they refuse to do it. And so Pharaoh, while he doesn't punish the midwives, and the, the book of Exodus tells us that God, however, rewards the midwives, who up until this point had no families of their own, and they, are, they ha get households. They end up with families and children. They are rewarded for their disobedience to the powers of this world and their obedience to the sacredness of life. They are rewarded. And we never hear from them again, so, but they're rewarded. But Pharaoh, of course, isn't going to be daunted by a couple of strong women. There are more powerful weapons in his arsenal than that. So he gives orders that um, we are not going to rely on the midwives. They're not trustworthy. They, will, they are somehow not beholden to the power of Pharaoh. And so his orders are that uh, female children can live, but any male child found among the Hebrews must be killed. And his army will carry that out. Because armies don't give two hoots about sacredness of life. Armies are allegiance only to Pharaoh. So he thinks he can rely on the army to do this. It seems that the Hebrew people themselves um, realized what was happening. And they come up with a strategy. And one of the leaders of the Hebrew people was actually the father of Moses. They didn't have rabbis, they didn't have prophets, they didn't have kings, but they had leaders and elders. And the decision is made by the community that there's only one way to prevent Pharaoh from eradicating us. And that is we will just cease to have children. We will not have relations with our wives. There will be no children born to the Hebrews. And there's a voice of protest to this. The voice of protest comes from the daughter of the father of Moses, Miriam, who somehow or another finds it within herself to stand up to her father, who was, of course, a powerful figure in his own right. 
and a powerful figure among the men and stands up to the men who have decided that the solution to stop the genocide is to not have any more children and see what happens when there are no more slaves to carry out Pharaoh's work. And Miriam speaks up and says, Pharaoh only wants to kill half of us. You're going to kill all of us. Are you going to deprive those whom God gives life of the chance for real life? Or are you going to eliminate life altogether? So that little girl, and she couldn't have been much older than six or seven at the time, manages to change the minds of the elders of the community of Israel to try something else. Trusting the, in the sovereign of life somehow or another. And so it seems and Miriam is probably six or seven. Her brother Aaron um, is three. He was born before the genocide starts, so he's allowed to live. But then her parents have another child, a boy named Moses. So here's the first, the first lesson of the heroes, the female heroes of the book of Exodus. Because of course, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about Moses. He's all over the place. But without Miriam, there would have been no Moses. No Moses whatsoever. There would have been no male children born again. There would be no children born again. Her voice as a six-year-old girl challenging the authorities of Pharaoh and challenging the authorities of her own community is a voice that can, allows life to continue. Not without its challenges, of course. And so Moses is conceived and they managed to hide him for a few months, which had to be tricky. But once you get to be a three-month-old boy, you don't get hidden very well. So I'm sure you've noticed, they don't hide very easily. And so there's danger that Moses is going to be found, and if he's found by the wrong people, he's going to be killed instantly. And so they concoct this plan of um, putting him in a basket and floating him in the river. It had to have been a very well-conceived plan between Miriam and her, and her mother figure out we're going to put him in just the right place in the Nile where the chances of him being found might give him a slim chance of survival. But slim is better than none. But still, this chance has lots of risk involved into it. And then we meet the second great hero, or the third great hero, of the feminine figures of Exodus the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, she's the daughter of Pharaoh. He's not only the supreme ruler of the whole land who could snuff out anyone's life simply by blinking at them. He's her father. And she has responsibilities within the family. Serious responsibilities. She has a lot to lose. Somehow or another, she sees this baby after hearing its cry and some overpowering motive stirs up within her that is more powerful than all of her father's might and all of her father's bluster and all of her father's weapons and armies and chariots. And she knows, she immediately knows this child is a Hebrew child, but she cannot bear to see this child killed.
and so she wants to take him home. But she's, you know, you just don't take a three-month-old baby home. You know, how are you going to feed this, <laughs> this child? In steps Miriam again, who's watching all this. And again, you have an insignificant slave who's a little girl who is now face to face with one of the most powerful women on the face of the earth. And the conversation has a remarkable equality to it. Mostly because, maybe because, the speculation is Miriam's got her. I know something that you can't tell. I have you under my control. So Miriam is exerting an enormous amount of influence in this situation and makes this suggestion. What if we find a nurse for this child among the Hebrew women? And then when he's weaned, he can go to the palace and be yours. Okay, agreed all the way around and Moses is reunited with his mother. But still, Pharaoh's daughter has some explaining to do. <laughs> and in a few, you know, a year and a half, two years, three years, she's going to show up with a Hebrew baby whom she has known, named and has claimed and announced to Miriam that she is going to raise this child as her own. And this word between the most powerful, one of the most powerful women on the face of the earth and a six-year-old slave girl has a bond and a power that's greater than Pharaoh's power. How she pulled that off, it's not clear. But somehow or another, this conspiracy of the women up against the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth is in play. Doesn't look like there's a lot of tension there, but there must have been. Now, yeah, poor Moses. <laughs> um, and I also, one of the other things I read, somehow I got very interested in him this year, people handing me books. So I read a book by a, um, a female Jewish psychoanalyst, or a dime a dozen. <laughs> who writes this book about Moses and it's based on this figure of Moses who is you know, the greatest figure in the history of Israel. The psychodynamics of his, of his psychology had to have been a complete mess. <laughs> this poor kid has no idea who his mother really is. No idea. So for maybe three years, he's with his own mother. And then he's taken from his own mother to be raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. Looks like a lucky break on the one hand, except psychodynamics don't really care. Children want their own mothers, not princesses, no matter how powerful the princess is. So Moses is always going to be raised with some kind of inner psychological conflict. He doesn't know who he is. But it does seem that the daughter of Pharaoh tells him enough that as he grows into adulthood, he is aware that he is not Egyptian, that he is a Hebrew, but he's a prince of Egypt. 
It's fun when I teach when I teach students about Exodus and it's it's they talk about t- teaching Greek. They have no idea, but they do remember the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> so we have some 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 operation there to to work on. Um, and he grows up and he has an interest in his people. He wants to know who he is, so he's curious. And of course, he sees an Egyptian being mistreated or a Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian, kills the Egyptian, is found out by the Hebrews who don't trust him. Why would they trust him? He's, despite being one of them and being on their side, they don't trust him. He's a prince of Egypt. And um, he's banished, of course. But still, we've got this, this scenario all set up. The, 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 the scene isn't neat, it isn't clean. The Hebrews are still terribly oppressed by Pharaoh, who, doesn't, who wants them powerless, as powerless as can be. And there's Moses who has no idea who he is at all, whatsoever, and is now completely confused. He has no home at all. He's not welcome in among his own people. He's not welcome in the palace of Pharaoh any longer. He is a nobody, literally a nobody. And he escapes and you know, settles down to a life of being a shepherd um, on a mountain um, in, the Sinai, in the Sinai desert. Marries his wife, Zipporah. Um, they have two children. And Zipporah has her own story in, in helping Moses understand who he is. And somehow Zipporah has an ear that maybe Moses hasn't yet developed to understand that, to understand to be able to recognize and hear the voice of the one who is truly the sovereign of the universe. So there's evidence that Zipporah kind of helps Moses come to grips with his identity. Then of course we have the great scene at the burning bush. And I, I know I tell this joke before, so you may have heard it. You know, Moses approaches the burning bush, gets this great charge, argues with God, is told that Aaron, his older brother, will help him. You know, they're arguing back and forth, and God tells him, Moses, you don't have to speak. You don't need a voice. Aaron will be your voice, and when you do speak, you won't be speaking your own words. You will be speaking my words. But Moses has no voice, which is typical for a child who doesn't know who he is and hasn't had the, the proper object relations development to understand who he is. And this is the figure God chooses to uh, bring redemption to his people. And then, of course, the drama plays out. Um, Moses accepts the challenge. His brother Aaron is ready to help him. The people are not trusting him at all. And then the story of the, the plagues, the, the Passover, this thing. And the people are set free. Of course, they have no idea what freedom is. And they are led by Moses across the desert to the mountain of God at Sinai. And they have this great theophany. The the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. Um, And then they gather at the mountain of God and they meet their God. And they're terrified by their God. And they tell Moses, you talk to God. We'll stay here. You, You talk to God for us. So this is what happens. Moses goes up the mountain. They think he's coming back in 40 days, but somebody miscounted. When does 40 days start? And he's a half a day late. 
and they panic. Because there they are in a wilderness without a leader, meeting this horrifying God who speaks in thunder and lightning from a mountain. And they don't know what happened to Moses. So the whole scene with the golden calf, that wasn't to replace God. That was to replace Moses. They needed some kind of a leader. So the golden calf. And here's just a little interesting tidbit. You know how we talked about Eve this morning? Now Eve has been accused of and held as um, the one who really introduced sin into the world. Uh, and Adam was pretty compliant with that. But the rabbis note that in the whole drama of the Exodus, as the people are set free and they go through the desert and they meet God at Mount Sinai and they do the golden calf and then they do their 40 years of wandering and all their complaining bitterly, which is one of the asides they said. So, you know, these people, this is what they've experienced. They cry out to God. God answers. God subdues the most powerful nation in the world with plagues. They're set free. They're being chased by the most powerful army in the world, trapped against the sea. And they witness God telling them to just be still, I will save you. And that happens. And then they meet their God face to face with a great theophany. And the rabbis say, so having seen these great, powerful signs and wonders, what does a people do? Complaint. <laughs> there's no water, there's no food, we're stuck here in the middle of nowhere, it was better off in Egypt, and that's maybe the way we are. No matter how great God is and how much God does for us, it's never quite enough. But the rabbis note that in the whole history of the Exodus, where there are people rebelling, all kinds of rebellions against Moses, all kinds of grumblings and complaining against God, even the construction of the golden calf. Women did not take any part in it. Women did not sin on the journey from slavery to freedom. And yet we still tend to blame women for all that. But nonetheless, in the Exodus, that was not the case, according to the great rabbis. But as they're going across the desert, so, you know, they have this whole thing at Sinai. Then they stay there for a year to build the sanctuary. To build God. They don't want to deal with God up on the mountain. That's too terrifying. So God, I'm going to dwell in your plane in a way you can handle it. But you're going to have to build it. So up until the revelation at Sinai, God does everything for them. After that, they have to do it themselves with God's direction and God's help. The first battle they're used to God fighting their battles for them and them just standing still and watching. The Amalekites attack and God says, you got to fight, but I'll fight with you, but you got to fight. And then it comes time to build the sanctuary. God says, my sanctuary is up here and I like it up here. You're not happy with this. So you build me a home for you in your midst. And he gives them the, the direct instructions on how to do that. Gives them all kinds of clarity about how to organize themselves, how to be in the camp, how to allow God's presence to be with them. And through it all, they do it. They're coming together as a people. And then they start moving again. And they run out of water. They complain. All this kind of stuff happens. And, and 
Um, they send out the reconnaissance mission, and the, and the scouts come back with terrifying stories about what the promised land is like, and they don't want to go. And it's clear that um, the generation born in slavery is not ready for freedom. It's going to take a generation born in freedom to be able to become a people that is truly free. Those who are used to slavery can't quite bring themselves to the responsibilities that freedom calls them to. But born in freedom, that motivation is there. But through all this journey, there's Moses. He gets all the best lines. And his brother Aaron, who is appointed the high priest, which kind of is a differentiation in authority. Um, the rabbis say that Moses kind of was hurt. He wanted to be the high priest. His brother Aaron has chosen to be the high priest. Moses has a different role. The priest is about the order and the everydayness and the sustaining things. The prophet needs to be ready to take chances, to do new things, to take risks. And God doesn't put them together. They're both necessary and both at the same time. But then there's Miriam, their sister, their older sister. And it does seem pretty clear, certainly to the rabbis studying the Torah, that the three of them, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, together held that community together. And while Aaron is busy offering his sacrifices and wearing his vestments, and Moses is busy communicating with God face to face, it seems that Miriam was the one who lifted the people up, who gave them courage and hope. And of course it was Miriam who led them in the dance of praise and exaltation when they didn't even know what happened. She's the one who gathers them to, in the first act of worship as a nation, singing and dancing and praising God. She's the first priest and the first prophet. And her brother Moses, brothers Moses and Aaron enact their roles. But within the midst of the people, it is Miriam who is the source of spirit and life and energy. And she doesn't really relinquish that role. There's this very disturbing scene um, where she, she challenges Moses' authority. She yells at, her, yells, at her, yells at her little brother, you know, which I'm kind of used to. That's what older sisters do. <laughs> um, and Moses was like, well, she's my older sister. Yeah, <laughs> God's, God's not happy with this. Um, somehow the way she did it offended God. And so she's punished with a skin disease. They called all skin diseases leprosy. They were not all leprosy. But if you had a skin disease, you had to be put outside the camp. So Miriam is afflicted with the skin disease for daring to challenge the authority of her brother. Um, and a fascinating thing happens. While Miriam is outside the camp, the people refuse to move. They will not take leadership from Moses. They will not take leadership from Aaron. They are just going to be still. We're not leaving without Miriam. Without Miriam, we're going nowhere. We're just going to stay here in the desert. Because without Miriam, 
we don't really have a leader. Oh, we've got these guys. But what good are they? It's Miriam they put their hopes in. So Miriam is punished for a week, and then she's restored to the, to the community, and they're willing to move again. And that's where they begin the 40-year the journey through the desert, in which they get to know their God, and God lets to know them. And they continue to do what human beings do in our relationship with God, holding up our end of the covenant beautifully. Um, we obey when we want to, and when we don't, we complain. And they're constantly complaining. It's that and the other thing. At one point, the burdens on Moses are so great that others are appointed prophets to help him. And this is what Miriam challenged her brother about. Um, she was afraid. She saw him in action. And what she seems to have seen is that in order to carry out the responsibilities of his leadership role, Moses was ignoring his own family and particularly ignoring his own wife. This never sat well with Miriam. And now she's afraid that with 70 others appointed to be prophets alongside Moses, the other women are going to suffer. They're going to be neglected as their husbands gather at the American Legion or the VFW Hall and drink <laughs> while they do prophecy. So she's afraid of that. She challenges Moses about that and lays into him pretty good. And for that, she's punished. Without her, they will not move. And then they continue. They go on their journey and have all their adventures. Um, not a lot said about those 40 years. They walk around in circles because it's an 11-day journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and it took them 40 years. The generation dies out. And, of course, in that generation are Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And they're almost to the end of the journey. This was one of my great revelations. I'm kind of maybe ashamed to say this, but I always couldn't figure out what was the great sin that Moses committed that caused God to say, you're not going entering the promised land. And it always had some vague thing about the water from the rock scene. And, you know, I was like, but, you know, he hit the rock with his staff. That's what God told him to do. That's true. Except there were two water from the rock scenes. One at the beginning of the journey one right near the end of the journey. At the beginning of the journey, God tells Moses, strike the rock with your staff and water comes pouring out of it. At the end of the journey, at Meribah, they're without water again. And God tells Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses hits it with a staff. Somehow or another, what was supposed to have happened in those 40 years didn't quite happen to Moses the way God had planned. And Moses did not put his trust in his own voice, which was the voice of God. Maybe going back to the fact that he didn't know who he was, and still didn't know who he was. So he doesn't trust his own voice to take care of the people. And he doesn't trust God's words in his own voice to take care of the people. And so he takes matters into his own hand and beats the rock with a stick. And the water comes out anyway. But for that, Moses is, is punished with, you're not going to enter the promised land. But meanwhile, his brother Aaron dies. And then it says, and Miriam dies. 
And the very next line in the book of Numbers is, and then the people had no water. With Miriam's death, a significant piece of life is taken from the people. That may have led to the, the rock scene. I'm going to get my things confused a little bit. But Miriam's death, the water dries up that they'd had for 40 years. Period of mourning goes on. Water is restored and they're able to continue. But in the midst of all that, bad things are going on in the camp. Moses is once again infuriated with the people who are violating some of the most basic rules of the covenant, consorting with foreigners. They're being seduced by foreigners and they're happily being seduced. And then they're worshiping the, the gods of the foreigners. And this is displeasing to God in, in so many ways. And it's all happening at the same time as Miriam dies, the water dries up. All this, this rebellion occurs in the camp and apparently no one has learned anything in 40 years. And for the first time in public, now between him and God, the two of them complained about the people all the time, taking turns, saying, you know, I'm going to kill them. No, I'm going to kill them. You're not going to kill them. I'm gonna kill them. But Moses never utters a word of reproach against the people in his own words. But following the death of his sister, as this crisis is occurring in the community, he has what I like to call one of those moments where you, he needed a Snickers bar and nobody had one for him, and he forgot who he was, and he blessed the people for their infidelity. And God punishes him for that. And the people turn against him. And the explanation that the rabbis give for how, why did Moses forget himself in this moment when there were so many other moments where he could have lost his patience? Why here did he lose his equanimity? Why did he lose his trust? Why did he lose his faith in the people? And the explanation they gave is without his sister, he was lost and he forgot who he was. And that's kind of how the story of the Exodus ends, because the next story is Joshua is appointed as the successor of Moses, which is another crisis in Moses' life because his own sons are not his successors. But Joshua is appointed his successor because Joshua has been faithful and has carried out the details. His own sons, who knows what they were up to. But the story of the Exodus comes to an end just before they enter the promised land, pretty much with the death of Miriam. The lifeblood, the spirit, the one who, regardless of priests and prophets and all the, all the things that they were going through, all the drama of Moses you know, bringing forth water and, and manna from heaven and quails and all this sort of thing, all these things that God is doing to make a people his own, the real agent of unity, the real agent of trust, the real agent of the one who seals the covenant between God and God's people is not Moses and it's not Aaron. It looks an awful lot like it was Miriam who is now dead and the people have no water until they grieve for her and bury her with great honor and great tribute. And then they are now free. 
or while they are ready to enter the promised land. But without the spirit of Miriam, they would have all perished in the desert. Without the spirit of Miriam as a six-year-old girl, none of them would have been alive. Without the spirit of Miriam and the courage of the midwives and the chutzpah of Pharaoh's daughter, this whole drama would never have taken place. There would have been no Moses. There would have been no Exodus. There would have been no opening of the Red Sea. There would have been no giving of the laws at the Mount Sinai. There would have been no journey through the desert to the promised land. And the people knew that. Because when Miriam was not with them, they weren't going to take a step. When Miriam died, their water dried up until they mourned for her, grieved for her and buried her. So somehow or another, that's not what you read when you just read the story or watch the movies. It's, you know, again, it's, it's buried in the Torah. And this is what the genius of the, of the rabbis, of, of the, the sages of the Torah of the century, see, they notice that there's a period. And then Miriam died, period. And the people had no water. And out of that period, they figure out that, wait a minute, without Miriam, there not only would have been no water, there would have been no exodus, there would have been no people. So there's our women of the exodus. Um, let's see where that goes. And tomorrow morning, we'll take a look at um, some of the women in, in the history. We'll look at, you know, there were women judges and prophets, and, um, and they were more effective than any of the men. And then there are insignificant women who become incredibly significant, uh, like Ruth and the widow of Zarephath and um, Hannah, as we talked about Hannah a little bit last night. And there's the crisis and the chaos. Um, and then there's these great little novellas telling the story of Judah, Judith and Esther. Um, lovely little stories that somehow or another in all the battles and drama and wars that are fought, um, these little stories of, of faithfulness, of persistence, and often people taking enormous risks and chances with no protection whatsoever, keeps this story going that none of the battles ever accomplished. Okay, so we'll take that up in the morning. <laughs>